Okay, so hello everybody and welcome to another episode of the Heart Shaped Decisions podcast. And uh, today I have the pleasure of having Lee Pace on the podcast. And uh, Lee is a educator or teacher who uh, we're actually LinkedIn friends. We know each other through LinkedIn um, in common with quite a few of the people that uh, I've interviewed over the last few months. We've never met each other. But so Lee is a, a teacher. He also runs marathons and um he, he likes trains so uh Liam, would you like to would you like to tell the audience a little bit about yourself and some of your passions yeah thank thanks graham and thanks for inviting me as well it's uh, you're welcome always always quite a, a privilege really to be invited to talk and hopefully share a little bit of knowledge as well good uh, I'll, i think i'll start with the marathon one if that's okay because yeah, of course Perhaps of the things you mentioned there, that's the one that's uh, kind of kept me going over the years. And, and mm. running running is really a tough sport. It's really tough. But I think the marathon's like a, it's almost like a metaphor for life. Because when you're on the start line, you're really, really quite nervous. Mm. And then maybe for the first 10 miles, you're just getting into your race. And then from, from 10 to 15 miles, it's really quite smooth going if you've trained well. And then you tend to hit 15 to 18 and then it's kind of starts to go downhill. Your body's, your body's not recovering as well as it may have done. And mm. Sometimes it's like that in life, isn't it? And then you hit the 20 mile mark. I think a lot of marathon runners will tell you when you hit the 20 mile mark, that's when it gets tough and that's where you show your character really. And I think yeah. that's, that's, that's why I say it's like a metaphor for life because you, it's just painful. It's mentally tough. Hmm. Uh, whether it's true or not but I do believe that most marathon runners that fail to finish a marathon usually around 23 mile mark and you think oh they're so close but believe me when you hit 23 miles an extra three yeah. awful awful long way and <clears throat> yeah it's, it's well, getting under that line the first thing you're doing is planning your next one and I think life's like that because, wow. yeah somebody once told me that the best ever uh, definition of self-esteem was that it was the uh, the results of a successful struggle. Wow. And that really does build you up. And I think you have to put yourself in that position first, don't you? I like that. Yeah, and I think marathon runners do voluntarily. You know, it's not just me that does it. There's millions and millions of people around the world. They do it voluntarily because they want to test themselves. Mm. I think it's important to them. I've done it ten times. <laughs> so, how, what made you? What made you start doing that? Dead interesting, you know. I was, <clears throat> and I remember the conversation really vividly. And it was in the common room at the sixth form college. And uh, I suggested to my friends, I think I might do the pottery's marathon, which is in Stoke on Trent. And one of them turned to me and said, "I'm not being funny, Pace, but I think you're too fat doing marathon." And I'm quite a stubborn person. Mm. Well, if you spoke to me a while, I'd say he's incredibly stubborn, he's ridiculous. <laughs> and uh, and that, that, that was like in the October, November, that the winter of 93, 1993. Wow. 1994, age 18, I did my first marathon. Wow. And I was, <laughs> I was, I was weightier than I am now. I was about 15 stone then. And it was tough. Uh, but I finished. Mm. And that's... That's, that's one of the reasons, stubbornness. And just I found running rat and I felt really good. And nobody, I don't think I ever, re, you never regret a run. Uh, I always try and oh, think yeah. with people on LinkedIn. I think there's a, 
a teacher, a deputy head teacher nearby called Catherine. And I do say to her, you'll never regret the workout after, ever. Unless you injure yourself, there was one. But uh, yeah. Uh, that, that's, yeah, that's why I started. And uh, I said I always wanted to do 10, and I did 10. And now I'm training, I'm, I'm in the Manchester Marathon in April, which will be me 11. So, and, and one of the other determined, be, I love being told you can't do something, because then mm. I can do it. Uh, my PB, my personal best, three hours 26. And I did that in 1997, uh-huh. age 21, now I'm 44. But that's my target to beat that time. Wow. 23 years later, and there's lots of reasons why I can't do it. There's equally as many as I can. So that's what I'm going to do. That's the aim. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, amazing. Yeah, I've I've actually, I don't like running, but I like walking. So I have actually walked to marathons. I do, they have a a walking marathon in London every year to raise money for cancer research. And um, I did that in 2013 and 2014. But I get what you mean about the the last three miles being the hardest, even <laughs> yeah. when you're walking it. The last yeah. three, you know, the last three miles were the hardest. People always say to me, I, "I've walked 26 miles," as if it's not the same achievement. But if you, I know a marathon's obviously quicker, and that's the aim, and it's more of a race. But mm. if you're walking 26 miles, you're probably on your feet for around 10 hours. Yeah, it's marathon really really isn't. Cool. You know what it's I mean? So it, it presents different challenges, and I can imagine. I can imagine. Uh, I, can't, I'm not, I don't know the technical term, but your blood can sort of pool in your feet. And I imagine that's yeah. much worse uh, when you're walking. Yeah, I suppose that's true, yeah. I mean, I, I did it. There was, 50, I think there was 15,000 people, and you also do it overnight as well. Yeah. So you start at 9 o'clock in the evening, and you finish, in your, you finish at sort of 6 o'clock in the morning. So you're up all night. And... Try as you might, you know, try as you might, you can't actually get any sleep during the day, the day before, on the Saturday before it. So you actually go, you go into it tired. Yeah. Well, I certainly uh, did anyway. But, um, people do think I'm mad for doing a marathon. I think you're mad for doing that. So. Yeah, well, people do. People say, what are you doing that for? I said, well, yeah. two reasons. One, to raise money for cancer research, mm. because I, I am a cancer survivor myself. Um, <laughs> And I felt that I wanted to do so, and two because it's there to do. Yeah, you know. Um, and I did, that. I did my last marathon for Click Sergeant, which is a children's charity. Mm. It's not a research charity, but uh, they they provide accommodation for parents near to the hospital where their children might be uh, having the treatment for cancer. Yeah, I've heard of them. Yeah, you know, as, as a child, you want your parents nearby, don't you? And it's, oh, absolutely. You know, and but it costs a lot of money, so. Mm. Uh, I managed to raise around four thousand pounds. Oh wow! That was good. That's fantastic. That's, how, that's how I got the place. It was London Marathon. That's how I got my place. I did it through a charity. Mm. So I thought it was good. So I think the other thing you mentioned was trains, wasn't you? Yes, I did. Uh, yeah. 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 Me, me, me granddad who I never met loved trains. He then passed it on to me dad, who loved trains in the steam days. Would have been my dad, and then mm. he passed down to me, uh, and I, I love the diesels and. Anything really that goes on rails, and I'm not sure what it is, but uh, I think my, my idea of just my contentment idea would be platform nine at Clapham Junction with a cup of tea. There's a little cafe on the station on the platform, and I just sit, get my cup of tea and go to the end of the platform and just watch the trains go by. But 
And people say, why do you do that? But it's like, why do you go for a walk? Mm, why, do you, no. why do you want to go in the sea? Why do you make sandcastles? Like, why anything really? But that's what makes me feel really quite relaxed. And it gets you out and about as well. So oh, nothing, nothing, nothing better than getting out to London and you get your underground pass or it's, it's not a pass anymore. You can just do it on your card. It's a uh, and you can just get around London, so I've been in Stratford, Clapham, King's Cross, St Pancras, all go around all the stations. And one of my heroes is Isambard Kingdom Brew now. All right, yeah, yeah. I'm reading, reading lots about him at the moment. And it, I suppose it links, it's like my personality, it's like the marathon, people romanticise, you've done a marathon, that's amazing, but they don't see the work that goes into mm. it. And I'm reading quite an in-depth book on Brew now about the work that went into his achievements. Yeah. Uh, and what's particularly striking is it's he was almost like on LinkedIn before computers. So he was he was making links with artists, chemists, biologists, doctors, all sorts of people. Because you never know who might influence you, who might be able it's to fund his ideas. Cause, yeah, because lots of people thought his ideas were absolutely insane and wacky. Mm. But he got the funding all the time. He got the money every single time because he knew a lot of people. And put himself around. Yeah, it's interesting. I bet he was in. I know that um, I'm actually in a mastermind group this year, right? Um, which is a group of people that you know we we um, we were we were supposed to be going to meet up, but we've actually done it all on most of it on Zoom and what have you. And we sort of share share our goals for the year, and then sort of uh, support each other, and in some cases nag each other through actually achieving them and I, I wouldn't have achieved what I've achieved this year if I hadn't been in that group I need that I need that team of people around me but yeah, the very course. first mastermind group apparently was actually um, in the industrial revolution in the, um, where people used to get together and um, you know they used to get together and egg each other on to do do things that had never been done before uh, wow. and that's so that's uh, yeah, that that is, and I, I would I would be prepared to wager that Isambard King, Kingdom Brunel was in a some sort of mastermind group with. You can imagine people, cool. and they they pushed they they helped each other. I don't think you can I don't think you can do stuff on your own. No, I think you recognise that, and people assume obviously his names on the bridges, his names on the railways, but people assume he did it all by himself with a with a bunch mm. of workers. It just wasn't like that. It wasn't yeah. like that at all. Uh, but he did work hard, and I'm reading around the, about the Great Western Railway that he built at the yeah. moment. And one of the one of the things he he had a a special horse and carriage built that he could sleep on, and had a mobile office. So he would spend, you know, wherever he needed to be on that line, he would get there. Oh wow! So, yeah, and there's lots of diary entries, and most of his days he'd work for twenty hours. Wow! Yeah, <laughs> just. Incredible, really, you know, for, for sometimes six weeks at a time. So, you just think the, the effort there wasn't a work life balance, it just was work, yeah, incredible, really. But yeah, I'm, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not promoting that at all, yeah. I don't know whether I would encourage people to do that now, not at no. Although, I suppose you know, some people, some people do, but I mean, I, I wouldn't encourage that. I mean, I don't think you don't 100% because the other thing. He died of a stroke at 53, you know, so... Really? He caught up with him, and yeah, the work caught up with him, and the lifestyle caught up with him. Mm. So, <clears throat> it doesn't... Well, there we are, then. That's, that's, um, 
okay, he achieved wonderful things, but at the at the cost of his life when he was yeah. young. Yeah, definitely, and I know other people miss out then, don't they? So maybe he could have scaled back some of his projects. A unique character. He's a unique character in history, isn't he? And mm. there's lots of things you can take from him. But yeah, I mean, just going back to the railways, that you know, that I spend a lot of time in Dawlish on uh, in South East Devon. Mm. The railway runs right alongside the beach. I love beaches. I love railways. And you can run between the two as well. You can actually go all the way along the seawall for two miles. Oh, wow. The railway line, if you go one way, the railway line's on your left, you're in the middle, the beach on the right. Yes, you can, can't you? It doesn't, know, doesn't get any better for me. Mm. I was there last weekend, and that's the first thing I did, is uh, got up on the Saturday morning and went for a new run. Wow. What, what could be better, eh? <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, yeah so, so um, your, I guess your, your, other, your third passion, then, is for educating young people. Yeah, definitely, and that, that never presented itself until I was probably about 25. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, my degree is actually in law, which I have found incredibly useful, uh, particularly for leadership when you're trying to kind of build your case for what, how you want to influence people mm. and inspire people. It is about evidence, isn't it? And, yeah. Uh, really, you know, it's like, it's like a, a barrister to a jury, really, sometimes. Mm. But it's quite useful. It wasn't until about, yeah, I think it was 25, and I did a degree in law, but I was selling washing machines. Wow. And, and hi-fis and things like that. There was nothing wrong with that. And I quite enjoyed it because of the lack of responsibility. Mm. But I thought, I'm 25 now, and I need to do something. One with this degree, that's, that's a waste, really, a waste of my time. And what I was I thinking longer term in the future and things like So, you know, if I carried on that line of work, I'd never own a house, I'd never feel fulfilled, I'd never be yeah. intellectually challenged. So my sister was a teacher at the time. She went straight into teaching. Mm. She said, why don't you just go and, you know, you have a day off for a week, you have a, every Tuesday off, I think it was, because you work in sales, you do work Saturday, so you have Sunday and Tuesday off. Yeah. And I went into... Uh, a small school in Stoke on Trent, small Thorne Primary School, and did a used to do a day a week voluntary work. Just okay. a system, really. And I just loved it that much, and that, that was it, really, I suppose. Wow. <clears throat> Got halfway through that year, applied for my PGC at Aberystwyth, did that, and then started work in 2002 at Huntington Primary School in Canada. Wow. And I loved it, and I think it was the best school I could have possibly started at because it was a tough school. Lots of disadvantaged pupils, mm. lots. But I saw the impact I had straight away. Yeah. You know, that, that was the thing. You, you could see what you could do for these pupils. Mm. And also for the parents. They held you in such high esteem as well because they knew you were the key to their children's futures, really. Yeah. Yeah, they didn't want, they didn't want in their own words, I don't want them turning out like me. You know, so yeah. that's what parents would say to me. And, you, and they saw, they see that in, in parents across the country see the teacher as that key, really, mm. to unlocking that potential and, and the pupil. And then uh, the head teacher there, Claire, she was into research and doing mm. things very differently. Ultimately cost her a job, I think, in the end. But, uh, but she got me really interested in how, how the brain learns and... The first book that I read was Building Learning Power by Guy Claxton. Right. 
used to be it used to be very popular. I think a lot of schools still use it. I met a government school that still use building learning power, mm. which is like the four R's of resilience, resourcefulness, reciprocity, and reflectiveness. I remember them, as I say. So we did a lot of work around that with the pupils. And I think that that idea is still still pertinent. I would like the sound of that. I'd definitely yeah. like to look into that. Yeah, I mean, if you get a YouTube guy, Claxton, he talks a lot of sense and just some little pearls of wisdom that he gives. And he says, what, you know, what's the difference between a skill and a habit? And a skill is something you, you can do and a habit is something you do do. And there's little things like that. So yeah. when, I'm, when I'm thinking about these big ideas, I think, oh, there's a skill, is that a habit? Is it both? When does a skill become a habit? So it got me really thinking about how I teach, how I lead. I think we are, we are pretty much defined by our habits, aren't we? Absolutely, yeah. You know, if, if, you, if you get into the habit of doing something like, you know, I get, I'm in the habit of getting up early in the morning um, because I feel better, you know, I know that the morning is my most productive time of day. Yeah. Um, some people, you know, some people, they say, oh, you know, the evening's my most productive time of day. So we'll just get up later and do, and, and, and work later. Um, you know, it's, it, we're all different, aren't we? But we have to, we have to understand. And I guess as, I guess you have to find a way of getting the best out of each student as a teacher, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Because, uh, you know, as a deputy teacher, the best way I can do that is through the teachers. Yeah. And what I find with teachers when you're actually talking to them almost in a more coaching uh, yeah. environment rather than appraisal or line management. If you, when it's coaching, I remember they yeah. feel more free to speak. The skill level they have and they, they, they can talk about that subject and the pedagogy around it, that craft of teaching it is incredible. Mm. But sometimes you go and see the lessons and you don't see that. So I think the skill level is really, really high. They can do incredible things. Yeah, they slipped into habits. Yeah, that don't support the skill, and it's it's mm. really really unusual. And I think that's the challenge of education at the moment to bring out the skill of the teachers. That we're, we're really trying hard to do that in our mat, and, that, and that's why it's such a wonderful conversation with the CEO of the day. And mm. that's what we're talking about. Let's bring out this incredible skill. There's the incredible skills across. You know, the trust that we've got, maybe 100, 150 teachers, yeah. all incredibly skilled people. Mm. Give them their permission, because sometimes it's a permission thing as well. Uh, they don't feel they have permission. In days gone by, you know, the, the Ofsted fear yeah. drove, drove policy and practice, and I'm hoping mm. that's disappearing now, uh, because I don't want to build a school or help build the maths and their approach based on one person or two people coming every five years. Well, I think um, that's quite interesting because some, you know, somebody I used to work for who was an inspiration to me in my railway days was the chief executive of uh, GNER, a guy called Christopher Garnett, and you will never have heard of him because he was wow. not well known. But um, he, well, he was well known in the industry and you know, any, everybody that worked for him in the late 90s and early 2000s has nothing but praise for him because he encouraged everyone to he encouraged everyone to put you know to put the customer first he said never mind about keeping your manager happy he said if you keep if you keep the customers happy your manager will be happy because we, yeah. we you know we had always been 
um, a very hierarchical industry. And he came in and he said, no, he said, he said, I'm actually at the bottom of the pile. He said, I'm here to support everybody yeah, else. Absolutely. And, and he, you know, he completely transformed my working life, you know, and, and the way I thought. I thought, oh, I've been looking, you know, I was, I was in my late 30s when I met him. And I was like, I've been looking for somebody like this to sort of be, to be led by all my life. And finally, yeah. you know, that's, some people never get that. You know, some people never actually experience being led by somebody that's a great leader. Yeah, and what I try and do, and, and I hope most of the staff would say, is I don't want to tell them how to teach. I don't want to tell them how to plan. But I want to give them the skills so they can make that decision for themselves. Yeah. You know, and support them in that as well. And that happy to I've always got time for them. And, yeah, just and, and give them permission to take those risks. Because sometimes it'll go badly wrong. It does. And I think modelling, modelling when it goes wrong, I mean, sometimes I go in the staff and I think, I've wasted taxpayers' money this morning. Two lessons. They were rubbish. Because I was taking some risks and they didn't work out. Mm. Uh, but I've learned an awful lot about the pupils from that and I've learned, yeah. learned an awful lot about my practice as well. But getting back to the pupils, the biggest driver for me in pupils is fairness. Yeah. And I think every pupil, I would say, it's, it's a bit of a strap line, I suppose, but every pupil deserves every chance. Yeah. And, well, absolutely. That's what drives. I mean, what drives me is in the work with young people that I do is, you know, uh, two young guys came up to me ten years ago and said that I've inspired them. Yeah. And I was like, I've actually got to do this now. Yeah. You know, Definitely. that is that is you know, it's not often somebody says that. Well, I'm I'm guessing you probably inspired a lot of people, although you're you're probably too humble to actually admit it. But you probably. <laughs> it's always, it's always the aim, and it says the aim. It says the aim, and yeah. Game for all teachers, and sometimes we need to remember that. And you know, they, these pressures that often do get in the way of that sometimes, yeah. But you know, I don't, I don't know who said, I think the last person I know that said it was uh, it was Ian Botham actually said, We were all born equal, just some are born more equal than others, yeah. So now it's time to balance that out, isn't it? And yeah, what I, what I find people say to me, Well, what is stopping them? And I try and reframe the question to say, well, let's look at the most successful pupils. Mm. What's driving them? Yeah. And let's try and replicate that. Yes. Less successful pupils rather than dwelling on what the less successful pupils don't do. So my most successful pupils, you know, and, and, I, and I teach maths and I teach like what you might call a top group as such. Mm. And then I might teach a group that are really not so confident with maths. And, and a biggest difference, I would say, is the mindset. It's not their skill. So right. again, we get back to the skill, don't we? They can all do maths. Yeah. You know, and, and for me, I think the best math, math teachers recognise that maths is just about patterns and relationships mm. and make sure you develop those between each one and make it really explicit. So lots of people have lots of the skills, but then when the pupils are less confident, it's, it is the mindset there. There's more apathy towards school. Well, where does that, that come from, do you think? Yeah, I mean, that, that comes, it has to come, it doesn't come from school, does it? No. Uh, you know, in, in the, again, in the most uh, successful pupils, we get a lot of parental engagement now. Yeah. Uh, sadly, they tend to be more well off, you know, and yeah. so the pupils have more experiences, so they may have a day, day trip to London, they'll have a holiday in the summer. Yeah. Uh, and because they're perhaps more affluent, 
uh, their parents are in more professional roles, so they mm -hmm. see the value of education. They have a wider vocabulary as well. There's lots of research about this as well. Yeah. And that's the hardest bridge to gap. Yeah. So yeah. how can yeah how can we? I don't know. Bridge even. Do you, do you have the do you have the answer to that massive question? No, I don't. And uh, I've worked out with me and my friend David at the Poets. We worked out that people in the year only with teachers for twenty one percent of their waking time. Mm. It took into account the holidays and stuff like that. So we can do our very best, but just asking pupils to close that gap. Yeah. Is, is too much for us to do. Mm. And we, we're trying and we're trying and we're trying. I'm sure there's some research the other day that if we, the current rate, the gap will close in around 500 years or something like that. It was, that, it was ridiculous like that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think it's, um, you know, from my experience of being, I mean, I, I was brought up in a family where educational uh, achievement wasn't a priority. Um, yeah. I don't remember my, I don't, I mean, I'm not, you know, I don't remember my parents ever saying to me, oh, Graham, have you done your homework? Um, or Graham, how are you getting on at school? I think they used to go to parents' evenings, but I never, I never got told off for not doing very well at anything. I never got, I never got praised for doing well at anything. Um, no. uh, so it was like, okay, well, I got, but, you know, there were certain lessons. I, I, I loved English. So I became very good at English and, you know, writing writing particularly yeah. i can remember being told off by the teacher for um i wrote i wrote a 12-page essay on a on a topic that i was given as homework and my teacher looked at it and said i didn't ask for a novel or just asked for an essay and that, that was like um yeah. you know <laughs> that wasn't particularly motivating but um i just enjoyed because i used to i used to read a lot because i used to escape i used to escape into books yeah um and I can still sometimes spend a whole day reading a book and I don't think it's a waste of time. You know, if I get a really good book, I can get into a book and it just, it just takes me away. But yeah, so that's what I used to do. But yeah, exactly. math, I, I wish I'd had a maths teacher like you because I was, I never enjoyed, I never enjoyed maths. It was never made enjoyable. No, I, I mean, to me, I, I always argue maths is the most creative subject. You know, people talk about there's intellectual subjects and isn't, you know, there's, Mickey Mouse subjects. Now every subject's really, really hard. And people, you know, people talk about art because it's lovely and creative. It's also incredibly intellectually challenging as well. Yeah. And uh, one, of, one of the big successes we've had as a school, actually, as a math, is reading. You, you mentioned reading there, and we've really we've pushed reading probably for the last six or seven years now. Mm. And and it, and it kind of starts with a bit of carrot and stick, I suppose. And uh, we we use some software that they, they read a book and then they quiz on the book. And if they pass the quiz, it's only 10 questions. If they pass the quiz, they, they're awarded that many words as points. Okay. Might be a book with 28,000 words in it and they get 28,000 points. And, wow. You know, it builds them up to be millionaires. And if they're a millionaire, they get like oh, a, fantastic. They get a wristband. And at the end of the year, we always, we've always had to cancel this year. We always do a big event like a festival with bands and stuff like that. So, wow. uh, and, and it might be uh, bouncing castles and that kind of thing. And if you're a millionaire, you get like a free ice cream, a free burger and, you know. Okay. It, yeah, so, I like you know, that. Yeah. And, it, and it's, it's been incredibly successful. It really has. And 
that is an element where we can close the gap because what we've mm -hmm. done there is not only have we developed the skill of reading, yeah, we've also developed the habit. And I remember a boy in my maths group, and I won't say his name because I, I can't, but he was behavior was difficult, uh, yeah, showed a lot of apathy towards maths, mm. didn't like maths. But often I'd have to tell him to put his book down because he was sneaking his book out. So, you know, he's, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't a brilliant mathematician. No. He wasn't confident. He didn't like it. Mm. But I quite like the fact that I'm trying to teach him fractions and he was under the table trying to read his book. Wow. So at least we've developed that reading habit. Whereas I thought if we didn't do, initially do that carrot and stick, we wouldn't have developed that habit. And once they get into that habit, they go, actually, this is pretty good. And these books are substantial books. You know, yeah. they, weren't, they weren't like, you know, what you might talk, you know, read, read as a struggle book. Not at all. They developed into an incredible reader. Wow. So it's, I think, perhaps stereotypically, it's worked really well with the boys because they like the numbers, they like the competition, they, they know their reading age as well. Are you a millionaire yet? So, yeah, even though they might struggle perhaps in English to writing, they might have a reading age two, three years beyond their chronological age, made well, them feel quite yeah, good about themselves. Yeah. So we can, we can close that gap. And, you know, there's, there's good work we have done. Yes, uh, I, I like that. That's really, that's really quite innovative. Um, yeah. <clears throat> I hope there's some other teachers listening to this that might pick up on that idea and get in touch. Yeah, there's some, uh, uh, I mean... Uh, on, on LinkedIn, my, my English leader, she's not the English leader at the moment, uh, but she's still with us, uh, but Hannah Hawthorne, mm. you know, I give her a plug there, she, really, she introduced that idea. Wow. She's, she's still a teacher, though. She, still, she helps me more now with the teaching and learning side and the well-being mm. side at school, and she's also a copywriter, which I'm never quite sure what they do, but... What well, all I know when I when I write training and CPD for the school, I send it to Hannah for Hannah make these words even better for me, please. <laughs> she, she's definitely wanted to. I wanted to be a copywriter. Right. When I was yeah, when I was um, oh about sort of fourteen or fifteen probably, um, my dad said to me, you know, what do you want to do uh, for for work? <coughs> Because my dad was always somebody who worked with his hands practically, and I'm not, I'm just not that person, never been interested at all. Um, I'm very much a, uh, you know, a, a, I don't know, kind of somebody, I'm a thinker and I'm a people person. Yeah. And my, so I'm complete opposite to my dad. I said, I said, I want to be an advertising copywriter. And he just said, don't, don't be so ridiculous. He said, you can't do that. <laughs> And I ended, up go, I ended up going to work in an office for the first year or so and then, right. then realised that I, wasn't, I, I didn't like working in an office. So um, that was, at that point, I left home and went to work in a pub. Yeah, I don't think an office would suit me, really. I've got, I've got an office, but I don't tend to spend a lot of time in there. Yeah, I, don't, I spend more time in my office the last, the last five months or so than I've ever done, I think, because, yeah. um, you know, I've been, I've been talking to a lot of people. But, um, but yeah... So, well, I didn't, I didn't need to ask you what your heart-shaped decision was, because obviously your heart-shaped decision was to go into education when you were, um, you know, you wanted to do something different. And you obviously, you obviously enjoyed it because you're still there. So you're still, still doing it. So what, what, are you, what are your plans going forward then, Lee? What, what, where would you like to be in, I don't know, two or three years' time from now? 
very difficult. I did have a couple of uh, interviews to be a head teacher. I didn't get them. And after I didn't get them, I, I didn't feel disappointed enough. I thought I'd feel more disappointed. So that made me think, is there something I really want to do? Mm. And I decided how I feel at the moment. No, it isn't. Because I love teaching and learning that much. And I love that, uh, that element of fairness. And I love I still love teaching, but mm. more. What I think the future will be me more coaching teachers, yeah, developing teachers. Uh, I like the idea, like you like a bit like what you do, Graham, is a bit of motivational mm. talking as well. And, and there's lots of stories I've got, which I think people like to to hear. And, and I do a little bit. I do a little bit with David Anderson. Mm. Yeah. So I think the future, I've also, uh, this summer, actually did a couple of webinars with Mina Wood, who's also on LinkedIn. Keep mm. a minute, I didn't, I didn't mean to name, but this is not like an advertising board or anything like that. <laughs> uh, but we did uh, some CPD, she did four webinars, I joined her for two and helped her with those, uh, to 30 teachers in India. Okay, wow. So I, I think... That fairness drives, but also influence. Well, I do like to influence people. I think it feels good. Yeah, I think. I mean, it does actually. I get, I get that completely. I like, you know, I have a, I have a Facebook group um, called the Heart Shaped Decisions Facebook group. Yeah. And I started it, and um, I've got about seventy or eighty members, and I do a Facebook live. I do a Facebook live um, three times a week, and um, you know, I thought I'd just do it because I want. I as a speaker. I needed to get some speaking because you, if you don't speak, you lose the skill. If you don't, yeah. if you don't use the skill, you tend to lose it. So I thought I'll just do this uh, Facebook Live, and I've now got people actually asking me, um, "Oh, Grant, can you talk about such and such a thing?" Well, yeah. oh, you know, little old me who you know started very, I'm very sort of inauspicious, quite humble person, but I, yeah. you know, people people listen to what I say, and some somebody, one of my friends, one of my LinkedIn and he's actually a, a friend in real life because we have actually met. Since you know, said that he he actually uh, follows me and and gets a lot from what I say, and that that's uh, that's all oh, really. You know, that's like uh, I can't, I still can't believe that people would actually really want to listen to me. I've got so I have a little bit of imposter syndrome going on sometimes. Yeah. I think people love stories, don't they? And yeah, you know, we again. We, uh, myself and David we're going to be working on a book but really fundamentally it's a book of stories mm. and it's about motivation and it goes back to Brunel who put in his diary once that he's he was frustrated when he was younger because he, he was injured on a project and uh, during his uh, recuperation he wrote in his diaries he was kind of fed up of building castles in the sky wow. which is his way of saying dreaming but yeah. he made the dreams come true and it's mm. that's I mean, the book's going to be called Castles in the Sky for that reason. Because yeah. what, what, what are people's dreams? And how do you get there, really? I think that's, a good, yeah. that's a good question to ask your young people who you teach, I suppose. What are your... You know, yeah, yeah. I, I suppose some, some of them will know what their dreams are and some of them probably won't. But it's a good idea to get them to think about, you know, who, mm -hmm. who they want to be, where they want to get yeah. to. I always think there's a bit of a myth in education because we always talk about raising aspirations. But if you mm. talk to most people, they've got high aspirations. Yeah. A bit in between. How do you get there? Exactly. Uh, and also, sad question why is that my aspiration? Mm. 
I remember once I, I really aspired to play the guitar and I, and I gave it a go and I got bored. Yeah. I just, it was uh, it's, it's a Ken Robinson, sad, you know, sadly passed away, didn't he, last week? Mm. He talked about finding your element, didn't he? Yes. And, and, and like he talks in his book about, uh, there's loads of things you, you feel you want to do, then you go and do them and it's not really what you want to do. And, and guitar's yeah. like that for me. It seemed like a great idea at the time. Just wasn't really my passion. I'm not that yeah. bothered. And he, and he talks about it. So finding your elements. And there's yes, he does. Educations and elements. I think I'm very lucky to have found mine. Yeah. Um, and you also sound as if you found yours. And, you know, you 100%. 100%, hopefully yeah. Every, you know, hopefully everyone, everyone can eventually find their element. Yeah. Mm. There's too many yeah. people for me who want and not happy with what they're doing. Yeah. Take it in the workplace because you spend a lot of hours there, don't we? And I don't feel fulfilled. And mm. sometimes, I think, like you say, they need to make that heart-shaped decision. That which is yeah. which which sounds lovely, doesn't it? The phrase sounds lovely, but I dare say most of those decisions are really difficult as well. Mm. Yeah, or lots of them. Yeah, they the difficult decisions. You have to leave something or somebody behind. Oh, I've had to do. I've had to do both. You know, I've had to leave people behind, and I've had to leave work behind. Uh, you know, the, the last proper job I had was um, I left my boss. You know, because I had I had a dreadful boss who who was a bully and didn't appreciate people. Yeah. And I just said, you know what, I'm actually out of here, and I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah, I think that's why I've been very lucky in my career. I've had very good, and I, I still call the head teacher the boss. Mm. Uh, but and I do think differently to a lot of teachers, but it's accepted, and that's really yeah. important. Everybody thinks differently. You know, and I've been very lucky with the head teachers I've worked for mm. that they've accepted me uh, for who I am and what I believe, and and my strengths and also my deficiencies. You know, there's the joke at my school at the moment is don't give Lee anything to do with timetables. <laughs> and I will, and I'm quite happy with that. Don't give me a timetable to do, because that'll be a mess. But <laughs> I can't think in boxes. <laughs> I just can't think in boxes. It's impossible. No, I don't. I don't imagine I'd be very good at that either. But um, yeah, I've never had to do it. Well, Lee, yeah. thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh. Uh, if people want to get in touch with you, I guess the best best way is to look you up on LinkedIn. Is it? Yeah, if you look on LinkedIn, and then if you look on me, I'm now a. Uh, the short bio, the, the numbers on there, and emails on there as well. Yeah, so it's Lee and uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'm sure we'll, yeah. I'm, I'm sure we'll talk again. But uh, absolutely, Graham. It's been been fantastic to uh, to have you on, and, and uh, I shall I shall be um, pub 